we've been studying this summer. Who is Jesus? Who's the real Jesus? What's he like? Um, Craig's been talking a number of passages um, that I think have been emphasizing the authority of Jesus. And that's a good thing because sometimes we really bristle at the authority of Jesus, even though the authority of Jesus is really our hope. (laughs) If he doesn't have any authority, then we don't have any hope in the world. But tonight I wanted us to look at something a little different, though it's interesting his authority comes in in a different way in this passage. But really tonight the topic is Jesus, the true bread of heaven. What does it mean that Jesus is the true bread of heaven? Why does he insist on really driving this image uh, to the ground, in a sense, here in John chapter 6? He doesn't just do something that provokes a discussion about bread and where it comes from, but he really really pushes this issue uh, to the point where it really upsets a bunch of people. And uh, one of the things that always challenges me is the way Jesus just doesn't seem to have much of a head for PR, He doesn't really seem to care very much that he's got the crowds on his side. But here in John chapter 6, and notice it's John chapter 6, and there's quite a lot more chapters of the Gospel of John, but here in John chapter 6, Jesus drives away most of the people that are following him because he insists, he insists on this idea that he's the bread of heaven, and he insists that that has radical implications for the way they live their life. And then the disciples even get a little upset about it. And they say, Jesus, what are you doing? And he says, well, look, do you want to go too? And I love Peter's line at the end of this chapter. It's not part of what we're going to look at tonight. But just, you know, if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, I don't really like this. Well, that's the way Peter responded. But here's what Peter said. He said, Jesus, basically, yeah, we're pretty upset about this. We don't get what you're trying to say. But where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. I love that picture of what it means to follow Jesus. I I don't always agree with him. I don't always understand him. But where else can I go? He alone has the words of life. Let's look at the words of life here in John chapter 6. You can follow along in the bulletin. There's actually two verses that aren't in the bulletin that I'm going to add. But we're reading John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 15. And then we're going to uh, pick up a little bit later and read the rest of the chapter. So in John chapter 6, we start this way. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. 5,000 men means most likely 20,000 people, right? So 5,000 or 20,000 people sat down. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. 
He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by all those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then verse 15, Jesus, knowing that they intended to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening comes, the next little section that's skipped there in the bulletin is Jesus walks on the water. Okay? We're not talking about that tonight. Because Jesus picks up his explanation of this feeding miracle uh, in verse 23. And so we'll pick that up. Actually, it's verse 25. Jesus talks about the bread of life. He says this, when the crowd found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, From now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have never, sorry, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father, sorry, no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal, everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, this is interesting. That last little line helps you see that this isn't just one speech. He actually sort of was talking about this and going on about this for quite a while. And John has summarized it here. And, 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 and so yeah, it's obviously something that Jesus cares quite a lot about. You may have even thought as I was reading this, geez, he kind of keeps repeating himself over and over again. It's kind of long. It's kind of drawn out. Why couldn't you have just summarized this? And, and, and the fact is, I think there's sort of a, an effect that happens when you read this, and it's this. Jesus cares an awful lot about us understanding this idea of, of the bread of life. He thinks it's really important, so much so that he goes on and on and on about it, even though it gets people upset, even though it makes people confused. He still considers it of absolute vital importance. Now, you know, j- just a couple words just really about the beginning. We're really going to focus more on what Jesus says than on what he does here. Uh, the, the, first, the first thing to understand is back in chapter 5, Jesus has really begun to tick off the Jewish authorities, okay? And in chapter 5, he really burns his bridges with them. At this point, his ministry is becoming increasingly hostile and increasing, uh, increasingly de- de- uh, driving or, or um, building opposition between uh, himself and the Jewish leadership. But the crowds are still following Jesus, okay? So as chapter 6 begins, the Jewish leadership has been thoroughly alienated, but the crowds are still following him. Now in chapter 6, he alienates the crowds. (laughs) Again, it just doesn't seem like the kind of script that we would have written. It doesn't seem like the way to make friends and influence people. But Jesus has a very definite purpose to what he's doing. Now, Jesus is not impressed by crowds. I don't think you have to read the Bible very far to get that uh, impression. He's, he's always rather suspicious about the crowds. He's never, he's never excited about the fact that just people gather around and clamor to see him. But he has compassion on them. And he feeds them miraculously. Yet, notice in verse 15, he refuses to go along with their agenda. Jesus never submits to the will of the majority. They want to make him king by force. He slips away. They follow him to the other side of the lake when when they figure out he's gone over there. And then he starts really pressing them uh, and saying very, really hostile kinds of things. There's no way around it. Jesus picks a fight with these people. He picks a fight with these people. I don't know if that's the kind of Jesus that you believe in. But the Jesus of the Bible picks fights with people all the time. He does. He does. And he does it here to people that like him. 
He says, you're following me because you got fed. Jesus is always pushing, is always pushing to say, what? Why are you doing what you're doing? It's a question we don't like to ask very often. We don't like to ask ourselves, but Jesus, if you come to Jesus, if you spend much time around Jesus, that question is going to come up. Because he asks it all the time. Why are you doing what you're doing? And sometimes he actually is so bold as to suggest an answer. <laughs> you're doing it because of this. And it's not, it's not really a good thing to want Jesus just to sort of be a means to an end. Here's one of the points about this whole discourse. Jesus wants to get them beyond seeing him merely as the provider of bread. He wants them to see him as the bread of heaven itself. You get that? Jesus, Jesus is not content with them just looking to him as a means to an end. As the one who provides even the most basic of needs. Think about bread. Bread is, is really the most basic of things that we need. Jesus says, I'm it. Jesus says, I refuse to let you think of me as the one who will give you the things you need. I am what you need. It, this is a subtle, a subtle point, but a very important point. Because so often, we separate Jesus from the benefits that he brings. We, we, we ask Jesus for his benefits, or we want the benefits of Jesus, but we don't want Jesus. We don't want all that he entails. We don't want him asking questions. We don't want him uh, messing with our lives and our plans and our hopes and our dreams. We don't want him to, to say something so strongly like he says, stop grumbling. <laughs> but he says it, right? We don't want that. We want, we want Jesus. We want, we want to be fed by him. We want to be strengthened by him. We want to be comforted by him. But often we don't really want him. When Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, one of the things he's trying to get at, he's trying to get good religious people to see that Jesus and God will never be a means to an end. It doesn't matter whether your goal is to make Jesus king by force. He'll resist that. It doesn't matter if your goal is to get Jesus to give you what you think you absolutely have to have and what it's completely reasonable for you to demand. Jesus still will not be a means to an end, right? He's the bread of heaven. He's not just the one who feeds us. And he, what he says to them, he says, listen, you've misunderstood this in the past. Don't miss the point now. Moses didn't feed you. You hail Moses because he fed you. You should have looked to God, the Father, as the one who provided, and you should have gotten the message that what God gives you, you need to eat. What God gives you, you need to eat. In, instead of just sort of grumbling, and of course, you know, it, it's interesting that John 6 uses this, this phrase grumbling because it's what the people in the Old Testament, how they responded to the food that God gave them. It's a common theme. But grumbling is always rooted in arrogance. And so is this attitude of wanting to use God as a means to an end, of thinking that we know what needs to happen. He just needs to get on board. Uh, sometimes the way, the way I like to think about it is treating God as if he is the divine pharmacist rather than the great physician. In other words, we want to write the prescription and we ask him to fill it. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't sign up for that. He doesn't go along with that. Now, the, the, the real question is, do you see that as a good thing? <laughs> or are you still grumbling? Do we see it as a good thing? Do we understand that God gives us what we need? He knows what we need and he gives us what we need. Um, he is the bread. The crowd doesn't get it, right? 
The crowd doesn't get it. And, you know, it's easy to look at Jesus and who he is and, and not get it. it. It's easy to look at Jesus and look at what he does and still not understand who he is. I don't know if, if, if you understand this, but there are people all over the world. I'm sure there are people in this room. I'm one of them who look at Jesus all the time and, and don't really understand who he is the way I should. One of the things that John 6 tells us is that Jesus doesn't just do a bunch of stuff and then leave it to us to figure out what it means. He actually takes matters into his own hands and says, this is what this means. The people were getting the sense that here we have another prophet from God who will do the things that we want. And Jesus says, no, I am the bread, the living bread, and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And we'll talk about what that means in a, little, in a moment. But do you understand what I'm saying here? Jesus doesn't just leave them. It's not enough for Jesus to just do a sign. He also explains what he's doing. There's a lot of people that look at what Jesus did and, and, and think sort of on their own about what it means. And they, they, in other words, they're okay with the cool things that Jesus did, but they don't submit to his words. There's a lot of people who are impressed with what Jesus did, think he's a really fabulous guy, a really impressive figure. He did all kinds of wonderful things, but they don't like, they don't like his explanation of what it means. Do I need a new battery, you think? Okay. Is it still working? Good. Okay. Um, so, so that's what you have here. We have people who look at Jesus and say, well, I like that Jesus did this and did that and did this and did that. I don't really like the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. I can't get on board with that. But he did some really great things. And Jesus won't let you do that. Jesus didn't come and just do a bunch of stuff. Jesus also talked about what it meant. And here you see that people have no problem with what he does. It's what he says that freaks them out. Right? So, you know, one of the signs that you're really following Jesus is not just that you're impressed with what he does. The question is, are you submitting to what he says? to what it says about himself in particular, if we would take John 6 as sort of our basis here, which I am. When, when Jesus says, here's who I am, are we submitted to that? Being a Christian means not just being impressed with what Jesus does, not being awed by his power, not just being touched by his compassion on the suffering. All of those are wonderful things, but following Jesus means submitting to what he says even when you don't like it. Well, the crowd doesn't get it. <laughs> and, and again, you know, one of the things I think is so fascinating, what could be more basic than bread? What could be more basic than bread? And, and think about even the way this image of the bread and the, and the blood of Jesus, the way even every single week here at City Church and in many, many churches around the world, for 2,000 years, people have celebrated eating his flesh and drinking his blood. If there's anything more basic to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to practice Christian ways of being, the Lord's Supper is one of those. It's absolutely basic. And yet, and yet, who here can fully explain what even goes on in the Lord's Supper? I, I hope you understand that the Lord's Supper is more than just a memorial of what Jesus did. It is that, but it's much more than that. 
We believe that Jesus comes and meets us. We feed on him by faith. And I can't fully explain that to you. Even a, a great theologian like John Calvin, in his book, The Christian Institutes, he talks at one point about the Lord's Supper. And, and, he, and he says, now you may, some of you may have, have a passing um, sort of knowledge or understanding of who Calvin is. We think of him certainly as a dry, dusty theologian, as somebody who's got everything figured out, even things that, that probably shouldn't be figured out. But let me tell you, when he gets to this section on the Lord's Supper in the Christian Institutes, he literally says something like this. He says, you know what? I can't explain this to you. All I can tell you is there have been times when I have been taking the Lord's Supper and I felt as if I'd been caught up into the third heaven. And he just kind of leaves it there. Even John Calvin says, I can't explain this to you. Later theologians have looked at John Calvin's uh, sort of explanation of the Lord's Supper and says, it's, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever, Right? But I think it's fascinating that one of the most basic things, partaking of the bread, eating the body and blood of Christ, is something that we really don't fully understand. I think there's a a, a real point to that. I think the point is that the Christian faith requires humble dependence upon God beyond even what we can fully understand. And that's what, see, that's what's so challenging here. Jesus is asking them, he's deliberately saying things in a provocative way. There's no doubt. He's saying things in a very provocative way, in a way that really challenges them. And when they're confused and when they're arguing about it, he doesn't make it easier on them. He just keeps saying the same thing. And and like I said, the next section here, the disciples are like, we don't get it either. And he doesn't explain it to them. So if you think that God's job is to explain everything to you so that you don't have to ever live by faith? I have news for you. It's not that way. And you should be reminded of that every single week, not just from the preaching, but certainly from the celebration of the, of the sacraments, right? Something as so basic as partaking of the body and the blood of the Lord is something that we really don't fully understand. This is Christian faith. Now, again, it's not, it's not like beyond thinking about It's not something that we shouldn't try to to wrestle with what the Scripture says about this, but it's not something that we fully understand. So the crowd doesn't get it, and it shouldn't surprise us because we don't even get what he's talking about fully here. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I think this is a wonderful passage for some thoughts on this. The first thing is that it means uh, eating what God serves. Eating what God serves. Um, Not everybody does this, you know. Not everybody does this. Uh, there's, there's a poet, R.S. Thomas, who has a line from one of his poems that goes this way. There are other people in the world sitting at table, contented, though the body and, bl- and the shed, sorry, contented, though the broken body and the shed blood are not on the menu. There are a lot of people for whom the broken body and the shed blood of Christ are not at the table. And the sad thing, and the, 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 what I love about that line from that poem is they're contented, even though that's not on the menu. God's people should never be content when the shed blood and broken body of Christ are not on the menu. If we're not eating that, what are we eating? What are we eating? There's so many wonderful, rich passages and themes in the Bible about eating. It's one of the ways that we're reminded that the Christian faith is not just in your head. It's not just about thinking things. Eating is very experiential. Jesus uses this this kind of metaphor here that you're going to eat this and it's going to actually produce life in you, right? I don't don't know exactly how how that is, 
but it's a very mysterious and it seems to go beyond just cognitive understanding. The Christian faith uh, goes beyond just cognitive understanding. Um, I love in Isaiah 44, one of my favorite passages about eating, where it talks about those who worship idols, who put their trust in things besides Jesus, besides God and his provision. And it says about them that uh, they're feeding on ashes. Feeding on ashes. I wonder how often we're feeding on ashes. And then we don't understand why we're hungry an hour later. You think Chinese food makes you hungry an hour later. Try feeding on ashes. Feeding on ashes. And that's the way God describes living apart from Him. You're either feeding on the shed blood of Christ, putting your hope in that, or you're feeding on ashes. That's what distinguishes Christians from other people. Again, so often we forsake the food that He set before us, and we turn to the ashes. But Christians are people who eat the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean? I think George Herbert, in his poem, um, helps get at this a little bit. Turn, if you will. It was one of the quotes for reflection. I realize that not a lot of you were here when we looked at the quotes for reflection. You should get here in time for the quotes for reflection. Sometimes they actually set up the rest of the service. Actually, usually they do. Um, This one we're going to read. George Herbert, 17th century English poet, says this, Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack, from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I've marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, said love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. That's a wonderful poem about conversion and about the way we resist it. And about the way God insists. Christians are those, Christians are those for whom God did not take no for an answer, but insisted that we sit down and eat. And God continues to sit, that we, continues to insist that we sit down and we eat, even though we protest, I'm not worthy. I'm full of shame. I've misused all the things you've given me. You've sat good things before me and I've chosen to go after other things. But God insists again and again that we draw our nourishment from the broken body and the precious blood of our Lord. Do you believe that you've been welcomed at the table and do you believe that that's an absolute miracle? I think one of the great problems with the Christian church is that we just don't appreciate what an incredible miracle it is that we come and eat. We don't naturally come and eat. Charles Spurgeon said one time, the great Baptist preacher, he said, faith is a plant that is not native to the soil of the human heart. And if you find it growing there, you can be sure that somebody must have planted it. Right? And and so it's true that eating at this table is not natural. 
It's not natural to the human art. And if you come week after week and say, Lord, I don't deserve this, and yet, because you insist, I will eat, don't take that for granted. See, I think one of the great tragedies of the Christian church is we take that for granted. You know, there's a lot of the parables, Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a party. And as I've now been a pastor for many years and talked to people, I find very rarely do Christians think of their relationship with Jesus like a party. I know in City Church we have great parties. But, but you know, most people would not describe the relationship with Jesus as a party. And I've often wondered, did Jesus really make a mistake? Did he really go too far there in describing the Christian life like a party? And then it hit me one day. The reason, the difference between the way we feel and, and the way Jesus expects us to feel is that we feel like, well, of course we're invited to the party. Wouldn't be a party if I wasn't there. <laughs> That's not the attitude that the Bible seeks to instill in us. The Bible says, listen, how'd you get an invitation? <laughs> like, we're like those guests in the party Jesus describes who they're in there and everybody looks at them like, How'd you get here? And, and, and we should always be looking at ourselves and say, how did I get here? How did I even get here to this place tonight? There's not an easy, simple answer to that question. You may be, well, my friend invited me. Well, how did that happen? Right? Who really got you here tonight? Who really keeps you coming back here tonight? Who's going to give you faith and encouragement to be able to come forward and partake of this body and the blood, even though your life you've lived this week shows that you have no right to eat? and to drink. No right to sing. No right to come in here and welcome people in the name of Christ. We don't have a right to do any of that stuff based on the way we live, based on the, the lack of faith that we have, and yet God insists that we sit down and eat. And if we were more amazed at that, if we came in here every, every Sunday and we said, I can't believe God let me come in this place. I can't believe he didn't strike me down as I tried to walk into the door. Then maybe, maybe we'd sing a little louder, right? Maybe we'd pray a little more fervently. Maybe we'd, maybe we'd just sit in, 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 in tears and just in, in awe that we would be welcomed in this place week after week, right? Jesus insists that we eat, and he doesn't take no for an answer. Does that blow you away? Because I don't know about you, but I just wonder, I wonder why he keeps it up, why he bothers, why he doesn't give up. But we know why he doesn't give up because Jesus is the broken bread and the, and the drink that is his blood. See, here's what's fascinating. Jesus is broken bread. He's the bread of life, certainly. But as you go through the Gospel of John, you get to this section where he talks about the bread is broken. This is, this is my body. This is my blood given for you, Right? Now, now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to say one more thing before we get to that. Can I do that? Yeah. What, what, one more thing that's important to see in this passage before I connect it to the Lord's Supper here. The bread of life is sovereignly given. And we eat because of, only because of his sweet insistence. And I have to tell you, Jesus goes out of his way to insist upon that in this passage. And I know that that's actually a rather controversial topic among Christians. I think my sense and the way I read the Bible is that 
every, every new Christian starts out believing that, of course, they've been given this great miracle. Of course, they all believe initially that if I've come to this place of faith, God deserves all the credit. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians, when they get quote-unquote discipled, they get told things like, well, you know, you know it, was your, it was your choice, it was your decision. They get taught how to do evangelism in ways that really undermine what Jesus is saying here. But Jesus is insisting, insisting, driving it, <laughs> driving it to the ground almost. No one comes to the Father unless he draws him. No one comes to me. And all who come to me, I won't lose a single one of them. There is no getting around sovereign grace in this passage. And Jesus doesn't want us to get around it. In other words, you may not know what to do with this. I'll tell you, it really wasn't until my senior year of college, I kind of put this whole, this teaching on the back burner and said it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. You know why it matters? Because if you believe that the reason that you've come and you've eaten is because because you were smarter than somebody else or more courageous or more faithful or more spiritual, if, if it's something about you that makes you better than other people, well, then you will never approach this table in a worthy manner. And not only that, you will never really be able to respond to the implications of the gospel. In other words, the reason this matters, the reason this isn't just a theological debate, whether God's grace is sovereign or not, is because if God didn't do everything for you, if you don't believe that God did everything for you, then what it does is it introduces this, this huge error. I'm not afraid to say that. A huge error at the root of your theology, which has huge implications. Here's the huge implication. The vision of City Church is to reconcile the diversity of East Nashville and Christ does God have a right to ask you to give your life for that? Well, if you believe that he did everything for you, how can you say no to that? But you see, if you believe, well, I know God offered this meal, and, I, you know, I guess, you know, I, I was glad that, you know, that I was able to decide one day that, that I would do him a favor and, you know, join his team. <laughs> you know, if, that, if that's your attitude, if you think that you did God a favor in coming to him, if somebody somewhere along the line has told you that you're saved because of your decision, then they've introduced for you really a fatal error at the root of your thinking, which undercuts the call of the gospel on your life. In other words, we are to live like blood-bought people who've been bought with a price. Therefore, we can offer our whole beings to God. And it's the only reasonable thing to do. This is what Paul says in Romans 12. In view of the mercies of God, offer your whole beings as a living sacrifice to God. Do you understand that if you think that you did God a favor in coming to him, if you don't submit to what God's word says here, there's a, there's a, there's a real disconnect there's a real disconnect. And it's easy for you to say, well, you know, God, you did some wonderful things for me, but I don't know. <laughs> You're asking me to love him? Love her? Be patient with him? Be patient with them? I don't know. That really seems like you're asking an awful lot. If you understand what Jesus is saying here, there's nothing that he can't ask you to do that you don't say or shouldn't say, of course. <laughs> everything I am, everything I have is because of you. Right? It has huge practical implications. It also means that Jesus' mission is not a failure. And if you're somebody who feels that you want to get involved in Jesus' mission, 
it's really helpful to know that His grace is sovereign and that He's not a failure. All right, a couple closing applications for this. Closing applications. Jesus is the true manna that never spoils and fills us up. He gets into this whole little description at the end where he talks about eternal life. And I just want to say this. Until we feed on him, we don't have real life in us. We may have existence. The Greek word is bios. But we don't have life. Zoe. It's a different Greek word. There's life and then there's life. And Jesus is offering life. Now, how does the love of Jesus give you security to enter into real life? Because I'll tell you, for most of my life, I've, I've been trying to content myself with existence. Because real life is scary. There's ups and there's downs. One of my absolute favorite movies that brings this out um, Probably not many of you have seen it. It's an older movie. You should rent it. You won't be sorry. It's called Parenthood with Steve Martin. <laughs> All right. Have you seen this movie? Any of you guys seen this movie? Okay. Well, it's an awesome movie. And Steve Martin is this guy. He's a dad. Um, he feels a lot of pressure from all kinds of things. His job, um, his wife, his, his kids, his father's approval. There's all these issues. Wonderful pictures of family dynamics. Uh, at one point, one of my favorite lines is, you know, he tells his wife after they've had an argument, I have to go into work now. And she says, do you have to? And he goes, my whole life is have to. My whole life is have to. I, I resonate with that line sometimes. Uh, but there's a point in which he and his wife again are fighting. And he's complaining about how complicated his life is. And, and his grandmother comes in to the room. And she kind of listens to this argument. And then she just sort of tells this little story. She says this. You know, when I was 19, Grandpa took me on a roller coaster. And Gil's like, what? You know, they're having this discussion. All of a sudden, Grandma, you know, when I was 19, Grandpa took me on a roller coaster. What? Up, down, she says. Up, down. Oh, what a ride. Yeah, great. What a great story. <laughs> she, but she doesn't stop. She goes on. She says, I always wanted to go again. You know, it was just so interesting to me that a ride could make me so frightened, so scared, so sick, so excited, and so thrilled all together. Some didn't like it. They went on the merry-go-round. That just goes around. Nothing. I like the roller coaster. You get more out of it. <laughs> Do you want life? Or do you want to just go around and around and around? Jesus offers the kind of security that says, look, you can handle the highs, you can handle the lows, enter into life. I died not so you could just go around and around and around, but so you could jump into this adventure called the kingdom of God. Second application as we close here. What does it mean to have a personal relationship with one who's been broken for us? Because the, the relationship Jesus offers is with one who's been broken. Do you know what it means? Completely changes the nature of our personal relationship with God when we relate to him as one broken for us. It's why we remind ourselves of it every week. It means that you don't have to try to impress him. It means you don't need to hide your crud from him. He's broken for you. He relates to you on the basis of the life he gave for you, not on the basis of the life you live. It changes everything to remember 
and to relate to him as one who's been broken for you, one who's given himself for you. Finally, are you trying to convince yourself that you're not hungry? I quoted Simon Wheel, I guess is how you say, uh, also in the, uh, the introduction. He says this, The danger is not lest the th- soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but lest by a lie it should persuade itself that it's not hungry. So many of our problems in the Christian life, I think, result from trying to convince ourselves that we're not hungry. And, and I think one of the reasons is we're just not sure that he can fill us, that he can feed us. But all I can say is come and feast. Come and feast. As we celebrate this bread and this wine, we celebrate that Jesus lived, uh, lived and died in the place of sinners. Uh, Horatius Bonar, the great hymn writer, said one time, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what we say when we come forward here. I'm fond of another quote by Charles Spurgeon where he says, I have a great need for Jesus, and I have a great Jesus for my need. And this is what we celebrate. That what you need, what you need to be able to feast with God has been done. Everything Everything about you, if you're a Christian, everything about you, if you've put your trust in Jesus, that would make God not want to look at you, that would make God not want to sit down and eat with you, has been dealt with by Jesus. Jesus on the cross took everything that would make the Father not want to sit down and rejoice and party with you, right? And therefore, we can be sure that one day we are headed for the marriage feast of the Lamb. And we celebrate now to whet our appetite and to be strengthened along the way. Everything that would keep God from wanting to sit down and eat with you has been removed by Jesus at the cross for those who trust in him. And not only that, but, but he meets us in this meal, spiritually, mystically, and he, and he says to us, this is my body, this is my blood. This is real, this is true. As, as real as, as this, this food feels to your mouth and tastes to your senses, my love is even more real. I actually lived, I actually died. My blood is real drink. My body is real bread. This is what you need. As we eat, we both confess that we don't have any worthiness to eat and to feast with God except that Jesus has opened the way for us. But we also celebrate, we celebrate that he has given us unspeakably rich food and drink. We're humbled, but we're also made bold because if he's given us this, won't he also give us all things? Can't we trust him? Can't we risk the roller coaster? Can't we be involved in the kingdom that he asks us to be involved in? So we come and we celebrate this body and this blood.